Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts 5. We started our series under pressure last week as we dove into this section of um, Acts 5, verses 13 through 32. We saw how the apostles were supernaturally delivered from jail by an angel and then went back to the temple to preach the very thing that they were told not to do by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, We noted last week that the opposition that Christians get in regards to their faith, uh, we can be sure, is primarily motivated by Satan himself. It's the spiritual darkness that works against the advancement of the gospel. And the scriptures declare, and we talked about this last week, that Satan is trying to wreak havoc Uh, to anyone who proclaims the gospel, not only in creating a hindrance for themselves, but also in trying to blind the minds and the hearts of those people who receive the word. Uh, I mean, that's a fact. And we had a frank little discussion about religious organizations that do this, that are used by Satan to create those obstacles. Because that's what was taking place there. It was a religious organization. It was the the Jewish Sanhedrin. They should have been the the purveyors of truth, the protectors of truth, and instead they were a hindrance. And so the same thing can happen today, does it not? That's not that we're any better or worse than anybody else. We just have to be cognizant that that as a religious institution, as as a church, Uh, we can fall into a ditch. We can either deny the truth of the word of God, we can foster a competitive spirit, we we can become enveloped in uh, some kind of legalistic requirement, we can become enculturated, adopting the worldview of the society, and and all of these ways create basically a burden upon people. Uh, And we see religious organizations doing this all the time. Um, And so we have to be able to take a kind of a self-critical nature of ourselves, not only as a church, but as individuals. And and as a church, we have to ask ourselves, am I, or or are we creating a culture, are we creating a policy or or a procedure that that stands in the way of of the health, that that hinders the advancement of truth, that, that makes it harder for people in terms of of living out their Christian life. Because we know it can happen, and we are not immune to it. And so that's why it's critical upon leadership to constantly be be vulnerable and honest about issues. And, um, you know, I I can remember multiple times the elders coming before this body and and acknowledging an issue or problem. And, And normally people are just very appreciative of that because... The church is a reflection of our individual lives that, you know, we all have issues and we're all working through stuff. And, you know, it's just a fairy tale to think we're going to have some perfect situation either in our personal lives or, or in, a, in a faith community. So each of us have to consider how we're contributing to the body of Christ to, to see it mature and grow. That's why we're here. So let's all stand. We're going to take a look at our text in Acts 5, verses 17 through 32. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the 
public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, Father, I pray that you would take away any hindrance in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own perspective that would keep us from receiving the truth. I pray that you would break down any pride, any arrogance, that our hearts would be open soft towards the truth, that we would not stand against the truth, but that we would be accepting. And so we, we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge we need your truth. We need the body of Christ. We need your involvement in our lives. And as we hear of you intervening in this narrative in Acts, May we welcome your intervention in our life today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jamie Atten wrote an article in the Washington Post last year, and it was titled, Spiritual Advice for Surviving Cancer and Other Disasters. Jamie Atten is 35 and is a Christian psychologist and researcher and was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer that had spread to his pelvis. Atten said, I quote, For the first six months, whenever I asked for a prognosis, all my oncologist would say was, I can't tell you that it's going to be okay, Jamie. It's too early to tell. If there's anyone you want to see or anything you want to do, now is the time. He says that cancer was not the first disaster he faced, that his family had moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina, and says, but this disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time the disaster was striking within. I was a walking disaster. And Atten learned that the key to responding to these traumatic situations involved what he called spiritual surrender. He writes this, Spiritual surrender helps us understand what we have control over and what we don't. In a research study I led after Katrina, 
we found that people who showed higher levels of spiritual surrender tended to do better. This finding didn't make sense to me at the time. It seemed like a passive faith response. Fast forward to my cancer disaster. I vividly remember taking the trash to the curb one winter morning while praying that God would heal me. The freezing air felt like tiny razor blades cutting across my hands and feet because of the nerve sensitivity caused by chemotherapy. Wondering if God even heard my prayers for healing, I kept praying as I walked back inside my home. Then all of a sudden, I dropped to my knees and prayed the most challenging prayer of my life. Instead of continuing to pray for God's healing, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. This was the hardest prayer I had ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. I finally understood. True spiritual surrender is far from passive. It is a willful act of obedience. For the Christian who faces any kind of pressure, whether it's for their faith or just any kind of pressure, I think this true spiritual surrender is an important aspect, and it truly is an act of obedience. It's the need of the hour, I would say. Uh, It's the reason, I think, that the apostles could respond the way they did to the opposition that they faced from these Jewish authorities. And I think it's the reason that we will be able to respond to the pressure in our lives with grace. Grace that we receive from God and grace that we are able to extend to others in the midst of the pressure. Instead of of kind of fighting against God, fighting that he will make my life more comfortable, there's a verse in Acts 26.14. It's a statement made by the Apostle Paul as he was hearkening back to his salvation experience of his conversion. You remember the, the dramatic conversion that he had on the Damascus Road. This is what he said as he was thinking back on it. He said, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that is, a, that is a, a statement that is taken from that time. And what it is is a, is a practice that a, a person would have as they were trying to use oxen in the, in the you know, agricultural farming community. And they would use these goads, or it was actually a, a sharp, sometimes wooden um, stake or just a, a, an instrument to kick against the the oxen to break its will. It would cause pain to try to move him in a a certain direction. In other words, God was telling Saul that his will had not been broken, that he needed to cease fighting against the will of God, that God was knocking on the door of his heart. The same is true for us today. We need to quit kicking against the goads. We need to quit striving against the will of God, against the will, uh, the will and the work of God. How do we do this? How, how do we fight against it? Well, you sit and think about this for a second, and I think you'd, you, hopefully you would agree with me, that our expectations that we have about God are sometimes our worst enemies. Now, 
I would say expectations are probably um, can be an enemy force in a marriage or in a church or a job, just about any situation. But uh, the expectations we have about God that aren't met, and then we begin to fight against God, fight against his will, fight against life, and demand from God that he take away the circumstance, demand from God that, that, that I be happy instead of God's goal to make us mature. I mean, we rub the little genie God bottle, right? And we want God to relieve the pressure. And if he doesn't, we can get ticked at God. We expect God to give us great kids with no issues, perfect health, a super spouse, a promotion with more money, a job, a church, a neighborhood with no problems. And God is our happy little genie. And we rub the bottle, and if he doesn't deliver, then we kick against the goads. Spiritual surrender has not taken place. Now, when Jesus talks about this, he uses a different term, and he says that we need to die to self die to these expectations that we have that life is supposed to turn out this way. I'm, I'm supposed to get this to work for me and we, we have this equation we make in our head. And basically the person who hasn't surrendered not only demands of God but they become demanding of other people as well because they're just not falling in line with what they want. And we want God to kind of give us our daily crack, you know, Fix my identity. Fix my happiness. Give me my fix. And if he doesn't, well, he becomes an obstacle for us, an obstacle to our happiness. Instead, we need to see God as one who has a purpose far beyond just our own personal happiness. Now, here's something that I think we have to communicate to all of our children, but unfortunately many adults don't get this, and that is this, that the world does not exist for our happiness, right? Every child needs to realize that at some point, that, you know, they don't get to call the shots in the world, right? In fact, some never learn that, and so they continue to kick against the goads. Have you ever worked with a person like that? They have to have their way constantly. Has never died to self, has never had a spiritual surrender. There was a great little book by uh, Roy Hessian called The Calvary Road that talked about this dying to self. Um, I'd highly recommend it. But I would say that God does his best work working in and through us in the midst of these pressurized situations. So what was it that allowed the apostles? Because the thing that fascinates me about this story that we read in Acts 5 is that these are the same guys that basically ran for the hills when Jesus was arrested, right? And there's only one left out of the 12 at the cross, okay? That is my sign to continue preaching. That doesn't say stop. That says I'm only at the 
half point. So we're going to continue on. Right? All right. What is it that caused the apostles to be able, seriously? <laughs> well, okay, why don't everybody just turn your phone off right now, all right? <laughs> all right. What is it that prepared the apostles to be able to respond the way they did with great grace and accept God's will to walk in obedience and to welcome the hardship for the glory of God. Well, remember after Christ ascended, they spent considerable time in the upper room. And what were they doing? They were praying. Now, we weren't there, but I have to believe that they didn't know exactly how things were going to turn out. But I also believe as they were on their knees and as they were praying, there was a lot of dying to self. There was a lot of dying to expectation of how they expected all of this thing to work out. Because you might remember, they didn't really get that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. But here they spent these days in that upper room praying, and they knew that something was going to happen because God promised them he was going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure they understood what that was all going to mean. But they spent that time praying, preparing their heart, and I think they were dying to self. They were waiting for God to intervene. That prepared them for this moment in Acts 5. The fruit of those prayers and that surrendered life are seen, expressed in their ability to handle this pressure in Acts 5. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. We see in verses 24 through 26 the motivations of the chief priests they were trying to placate to the crowd. They were playing politics. They were using that political angle, just trying to make sure that people approved of them. And verse 24 says, they wondered how this would all turn out now that the apostles were back to preaching. Again, they were not concerned about the veracity of the gospel. They weren't concerned about the safety of the apostles. They were concerned about how this would impact their influence upon the people. And verse 26 says, they didn't want to manhandle the apostles because they were fearful that this would cause the people to turn on them and then they would stone them. And God intervened so that the gospel would not be hindered. And he called the apostles to preach. They understood what they were on the earth to do. I think it's a challenge to all of us when we consider, if I were to ask you, what is your purpose? Not some candy-coated, you know, Sunday school answer, well, I'm to glorify God. All right, well, everybody knows that, but I'm talking about a specific purpose. Why does God have you on this earth to do? 
What's unique about what you're going to bring to the table in your giftedness, in your calling? What is that? Can you put that in just one sentence? And once you understand that, imagine the difference that makes in allowing you to endure situations. Because what you realize at that point is that God has me on the earth to accomplish his purpose. This is not about my happiness. This is about God accomplishing something through me. And he built within these men, the apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, a sense of obedience to their calling. And that's what caused them to endure. And it's a remarkable trait when you consider how supernatural this was of the work of God in them to do that, considering how fearful and cowardice they were before. God can supernaturally intervene in our lives. He did so for these men, and he he took care of the obstacles, such as escaping from prison. And the point is, is that God can intervene any way he wants, but when he gives us a purpose, he is with us to accomplish that purpose. And I believe that he will see that through. And I believe that he will work in the midst of the obstacles. He may take it away or he may help us to endure. But when we're assured of God's calling on our life, when we are directed by the spirit of God, we can move in confidence that God will work, that God will intervene. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. See, when men and women have a a sense of God's purpose for their lives, they are turned into courageous warriors. And when people do not understand God's purpose for their lives, they run for the hills. Troubles come. I'm not walking through it. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to get a different spouse. This is just too hard. I mean, listen, why risk it if I have no greater purpose? Why? Why endure when the only thing that matters is my happiness? Endurance doesn't fit within that kind of a context. This testimony we heard from Derek and Becky. Perfect. I didn't tell him to say that. But he's right. You, you have a long view when you, when you value the relationships. It's not about my happiness. I may have to endure some hardships. Why go through the hardships with endurance, though, if the main goal does not extend beyond my comfort? Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Bold as a lion. I love that. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, we noticed this last week. They say, This name, this man's blood. They can't even utter the name of Jesus. They bring the apostles before the council. And the council denies any culpability in the death of Jesus. They don't want, as the passage says, they don't want this man's blood upon us. That's an Old Testament idea. 
And it basically means that we're responsible for murder. We're not responsible for that, they're saying. Why were they so fearful? Well, maybe they feared that the apostles were going to bring some kind of divine vengeance, or maybe they were concerned about an uprising that would lead to their stoning. They certainly were concerned just about their reputation. We know that. The truthfulness of the gospel was not something they were preoccupied with. They were preoccupied with self. The same holds true for us. When we're willing to be honest with ourselves and vulnerable, we're not so concerned about our reputation. We're not trying to play people in some political con game. Just let the chips fall. We realize God's working, that there's a purpose. I don't really much care how people view me or view our kids. I'm not trying to impress. I'm released of that, and I can live in freedom because I'm on purpose. I'm on mission. And when I'm not, when I'm not, it's amazing how truth has a much harder time of soaking into our hearts. It's so interesting to me about these same people that were saying this stuff about, you know, the blood is not on us. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was before the Jewish council and the the crowd was yelling for him to be crucified? Do you remember what they said? Matthew 27, verses 22 through 26. Listen to this. And Pilate said to them, And what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. See, they didn't think he was the Messiah. Isn't he just some regular old guy who's, you know, trying to, you know, get one over on us? We'll just kill him. So what if his blood is on us? Okay? And then he released for them Barabbas and scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. How quickly they forgot what they had said. And by the way, we know the chief priests were there because in John 19.15 it says this, um, that they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they're part of the crowd crying, yelling for him to be crucified. Put his blood on us. They didn't think that was a big deal. Now things have changed. Now he rose from the dead. Now they've got the son of God to work with. And they've got people preaching about the resurrection The point is their arrogance and their pride blinded them to their sin. It's an amazing thing, the power of denial, is it not? And they act as if they're innocent, or is it really that it's condemnation that keeps them from seeing the truth? Isaiah 44, 18 says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. You see, the the apostles were including in their sermons, they were reciting history that they were culpable, these chief priests. You might remember in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up, this is Peter when he's preaching, this 
Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later on in verse 36, let all the, let all the house of Israel, all the leadership of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Or how about from the very steps of the temple, they said in Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. This is again Peter. And by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, you, the leaders of Israel, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's where they healed the lame man. So it's like, bam, bam. They're just getting hit in the face constantly with the truth of this, that it's on your hands. Deny it all you want, but it doesn't change the truth that you are culpable for this. You are responsible for this. Wow. You got anything like that in your life? You're getting hit in the face with it time and time again, and you haven't yet relented or submitted yourself to God. And it's so much easier to give up the fight now and just surrender to God and admit your sin. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, I don't know that Peter and the apostles really had any idea as to exactly what would happen in the future. Maybe they know it's going to get worse. But it seems to not matter to them. In other words, they are resolute to what? To the mandate that God has given them. That they're going to obey God. They're going to continue to preach the gospel. And whatever that brings, they're willing to oblige. Is there anything in our life that drives us like that, that motivates us to our core, that you know what? I am not compromising on this, that, that I'm going to obey God. Hmm. Obeying God rather than men. That's their reasoning for why they are defying the Sanhedrin. Our first obligation is to obey God, but God has also told us to obey government authorities, to pay our taxes, to honor the king. But when the government clearly demands allegiance in direct violation of God's will or a biblical injunction, then we're to obey God. And that was the case here. Now, P Peter clearly lays out the conflict. God intervened by raising Jesus from the grave, and Jesus is now the ultimate authority who sits at the right hand of God. That's a position of authority. And we know, and Peter reminds them, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, that that is your, that is your venue for experiencing forgiveness. And then notice what he says. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. That is amazing to me that he throws that out there. Because to the very people who yelled and screamed 
for him to die, he's now saying, God's grace can forgive you. And he's offering them repentance. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Do you have something that dogs you all the time? A memory? Some kind of failure? And Satan uses it to remind you that you know, you're some kind of scum of the earth and he lies to you that way? Remember this. I would say that if God can offer forgiveness to those who crucified his son, he can forgive you. That his grace is pretty awesome. Even the worst of sinners, they humble themselves before God, put their faith in Christ. They're forgiven. I love the sovereignty of God at work here. You killed Jesus, he's saying to them. You killed Jesus. You hung him on that tree, but God raised him up. But he's sitting at the right hand of God. But he's our savior. He's our leader. I think he chooses his words carefully, all right? And by the way, I love too that he adds that there are witnesses to this. He says, and we are witnesses to these things. In other words, this is not some legend about Jesus rising from the dead that has culminated over the years. We're talking the same generation, just days, weeks after the resurrection. Many of you right here saw the resurrected Christ. So this faith that we have in Jesus is based on fact. Living proof that he's Savior and Lord. So the fact that he's sitting at the right hand of God, the fact that he's leader and Savior, I can believe that because he rose from the dead. That's not a far trip once you see a guy who's in the grave three days and now he's walking around. Uh, Yeah, there's something to him. I think he's son of God. I think he's a leader. I think he's the Savior. Living proof. And clearly, there was something to these names As a savior, he's the means of reconciliation to God. This is your ticket, you Jewish people. And this is our ticket. It's not being a part of some denomination. It's not outperforming somebody else. It's not having your good works outweigh your bad. It's Jesus Christ falling on our knees and humbling ourselves before him and acknowledging that it's his work that allows us to be forgiven. And as our leader, he is the Lord of our lives. He is the one that we are to be submissive to in all things. And so we, we welcome his wisdom. We seek to submit ourselves to him and not kick against the goads, as it were. And so we see this strand through our story of God intervening. It could be that he will deliver us. He will deliver us. He's able to do that. We see him do that in pressurized situations. God could deliver us. He could heal us. He's able to. And nothing wrong with praying that. But he also could have us endure. He could have us travel through it. 
Listen to Revelation 14, 12. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. And I would say this to you, Christ Community Church. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And then listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Did he have to say that? It is good for me that I am afflicted. You know, it could be marital tension. It could be not getting a situation at work that you want, a promotion or a raise. It could be something in church. It could be a family issue. It could be a myriad of things. It's good for me. It's good for me that I can learn obedience, that I can learn that the relationships I have are to be valued, that I can love well, that God can do a deep work in and through me. 